This is one of the biggest blights on our society today. This is one of the biggest regressions we've ever seen. Welcome to the Ryan Holmes podcast, where we exist to encourage Christian thinking and Christian living. This week, we are bringing you episode 35, and it's part two of a discussion that we began in episode 34. Before we get going, a reminder, would you mind pausing the episode, and if you haven't yet, go and leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, whatever audio platform you might be using, and that way, if you have benefited from this podcast, if you've been encouraged from this podcast, if you've been helped in any way, you can be a help to us as well just by leaving us a review, and that'll help get it in front of more people. If you would like to take a step further and financially support the podcast and the work that I'm doing, head over to ryanholmespodcast.locals.com and you can join our community there for just $5 a month. You can go to the link online or you can download the Locals app and that information will be in the show notes below. If you prefer video format, subscribe to our YouTube channel and like the videos, comment, share the videos, um, and that'll just be another way that you can you can get this in front of more people and support the podcast. If you want to check out some Ryan Holmes podcast merch, head over to justjesusbrand.store and click on the Ryan Holmes podcast tab, and our locals community members will get 15% off everything in the store, the Ryan Holmes podcast merch, and all of our Just Jesus Brand store items as well. And if you have any questions, comments, thoughts, send me an email to ryanholmespodcast at gmail.com, and I would love to interact with you there. All right, last episode, we began a conversation on abortion. I was walking through an article that was published by a pastor in Canada, and this pastor was providing a pro-abortion argument from the scriptures. He was challenging the biblical pro-life perspective, which, by the way, if, if you're staying true to the scriptures, it's the only perspective on this subject. I'm not going to be wishy-washy in that, uh, regarding that in any way. I mean, I want to be very clear. It is the only perspective if you are being a biblically consistent Christian. If you haven't listened to that episode yet, uh, you will miss some of the context as we'll, we'll be jumping right back into the article. And so you obviously have already missed a chunk. So please go ahead and check that out. We discussed some of the online Christian responses to the uh, abortion issue and recent Roe v. Wade decision in the United States. We outlined what the pro-life argument is in a clear and concise manner, and we then covered a couple biblical passage, passages that were addressed in the article and that this pastor um, brought to our attention. So again, please check out that first episode. And now we'll, we'll continue reading in the article directly from what this 
this author says. So he goes on. He says this, The other biblical text sometimes used to oppose abortion is the story of Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist, in the New Testament. When she meets with Mary, the mother of Jesus, the following is recounted in the Gospel of Luke. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the child leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. It's a compelling verse for Christians, linking as it does Jesus, who is the Messiah, with John, who was the Baptist, who would introduce the Son of God to the world. But does it have anything at all to say about the subject of of abortion? Not really. First, because it merely describes movement in the womb, and second, because this is a reference to people who are not ordinary, not usual, not as the rest of us. This is a poetic illustration of the link between Jesus and John, a scriptural ballad telling of what is of the eternal, the humanizing of salvation. It's not a guide to female reproduction. Other than this, the subject is simply not mentioned in the New Testament. On that note, that last little line where he says the subject is is simply not mentioned in the New Testament, um, I did address this typical argument about how uh, abortion is not, or the specific act of abortion or the word abortion is not addressed or used in the Bible at all. And I, I, I addressed that argument in the previous episode, so if you missed it, please go back and have a listen. But first of all, Of course, this passage is not a guide to female reproduction, because reproduction has already taken place, which is a major irony of the whole reproductive rights argument. Once the baby is conceived, the reproduction has already taken place. When a woman gives birth, she's not reproducing, she's giving birth. When the man and the woman come together and they conceive the baby, that is reproduction. So the idea of reproductive rights doesn't actually apply. Secondly, he describes this as as poetry or a scriptural ballad. He's wrong. He's dead wrong. The Gospels, including Luke's Gospel, are historical eyewitness accounts of the events being recorded. They are either direct eyewitness accounts or they are accounts taken from eyewitnesses. These are historical documents regarding historical events. Luke is an incredibly detailed historian of the highest order. You can see this throughout his book, Luke, the Gospel of Luke, and the book of Acts, which he is also the author of. So the writer is flat out wrong about this passage here. Finally, you could make the argument that we are not like Jesus in the same way, although he was 100% man as well as being 100% God. But just because God had had a special plan for John and used him in a unique way, it does not mean that he was somehow different in his humanity than you and I are. If, if you continue reading in this passage, you'll notice something very interesting. For understanding biblical context, you must read the whole passage. I think it's, um, I think it's Frank Turek who often says, never read a Bible verse. You shouldn't do this because your understanding will be wrong or at best incomplete. 
And what's funny about this particular passage is that all you have to do is start reading the very next verse. Verse 42, And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. If just reading this isn't compelling enough, I want to highlight what Elizabeth says. She says, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Now, the, the word baby used in this passage in the original language is the Greek word brephos. It is used to describe an unborn child, embryo, or fetus. It's also the same word to describe a newborn child, a baby, or an infant. Let's look at Luke chapter 18 and verse 15. Ironically, a verse where Jesus elevates the stature of children and reprimands his disciples for preventing those children from coming to him. It says this, Now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. The same word, brephos, that was used to describe Elizabeth's unborn child in Luke chapter 1 and verse 44 is used to describe the children brought to Jesus in Luke 18, 15. And that's just one cross-reference. There's, there's many more. Consider Luke chapter 2 and verse 12. This same word, brephos, is used to describe none other than Jesus himself when the angel of the Lord appeared to the shepherds bringing them news of Jesus. It says this, And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby, or brephos, wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. The Bible uses the same word interchangeably for a baby in the womb and outside the womb, because there is no difference between the two. So Luke 1 certainly does view the preborn as a human being without a doubt. And one does have to read just a portion of it while ignoring the rest in order to be able to re-summarize it in a way that fits their pre-choice presuppositions that they come to the text with. I'll continue on reading in the article. Exodus 21 and verse 22 is, however, a part of the Bible that actually does mention the fetus. When people who are fighting injure a pregnant woman so that there is a miscarriage, and yet no further harm follows, the one responsible shall be fined, what the woman's husband demands, paying as much as the judges determine. If any harm follows, then you shall give life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. This is fascinating because it outlines specific punishments for specific crimes. If a woman is hurt in a struggle and then has a miscarriage, the penalty is a fine, a mere financial payment. But if there is further harm, likely meaning the woman has long-term and serious injuries or even dies, then the culprit could be killed. In other words, the life and well-being of the woman, the mother, is of much greater significance than those of her unborn child. So you read, you heard the scenario given in this passage uh, where two men are fighting and a woman tries to intervene, to step in and, and, and break up the fight. One of the men accidentally strikes the woman and then the instruction is given. 
this this is a very interesting passage for sure. The author here he he is quoting a translation that does that doesn't translate miscarriage correctly. The Hebrew word or the Hebrew phrase yatsa, if translated correctly, actually means to go out, come out, exit, or go forth, which is what the majority of translations actually say. Let me just read a few. The King James Version says this, If men strive and hurt a woman with child so that her fruit depart from her, the New King James says this, so that she gives birth prematurely, the New American Standard Bible says this, If men struggle with each other and strike a woman with child so that she gives birth prematurely, the NIV says this, If people are fighting and hit a pregnant woman and she gives birth prematurely, the English Standard Version, I'll read the whole passage here so we get a full understanding. When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined, as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. So if the woman is struck, causing a premature delivery of her child or children, but the child is unharmed, then the man will be fined. But if there is further damage or even death, the equivalent payment must be made life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, and so on. So is this passage valuing the woman's life over and above her unborn child or children? No. It's valuing both of their lives the same. The article continues, Of course, if opponents of abortion were genuinely to live by the commandment that we must never kill, they would oppose wars, the military, the death penalty, and policies that lead directly to poverty, hunger, ill health, and death. Okay, there's a lot there. But listen to this line again. He says this, If opponents of abortion were genuinely to live by the commandment that we must never kill. This is something important to highlight. This is not the standard that a Bible-believing Christian lives by. We do not believe that we must never kill. That's not the position. This is another straw man, and I covered uh, a straw man fallacy in the previous episode, but basically you present your opponent's argument in such a way that, that it makes it easier to knock over. So you don't accurately represent your opponent's position. You just you just present it in a way that it makes it easier to knock over. That's what a straw man argument or fallacy is. So for this, we'll have to go back to one of the Ten Commandments. And I'm sure this is what he's uh, kind of drawing attention to. Um, but it's Exodus 20 and verse 13, where it says, you shall not murder. That's one of the Ten Commandments. So upon reading this commandment, are we to conclude that the Christian must always take the position, never kill? Not so fast. The Hebrew phrase used for murder is ratzak. And I apologize if anybody knows these Hebrew terms better than I do. If I'm butchering them, again, I apologize. But the Hebrew term for murder here is ratzak. Listen to this description of this 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 phrase being used. This is speaking of one human being killing another and never of a person killing an animal. Ratzak is never employed in context of war, 
capital punishment, or self-defense. The taking of a human life is the primary concept behind this word. It refers to the premeditated or accidental taking of the life of another human being and includes any unauthorized killing. The word is used for the punishment of a murderer, but that would not be included in the prohibition. So the phrase used in this commandment is not an absolute statement that covers all forms of killing. As a matter of fact, if the author's position is we should never kill, he's the one who would have a hard time with God commanding Israel to go to war or using the conquest of foreign nations over Israel as judgment, as God is the just judge. His judgments are perfect, and he does not let evil go unpunished. Otherwise, he wouldn't be loving, and he wouldn't be just. The author is the one that would not be able to square many portions of the Bible with his own professed faith. Notice something else, the standard that he has established here. If pro-lifers were really pro-life, they would be against, quote, policies that lead directly to poverty, hunger, ill health, and death. Basically, what he is saying is that if pro-lifers were really pro-lifers, they would be for every progressive policy position that would allegedly bring about good for all. This is something that has frustrated me as I've seen the reaction to the re recent Roe v. Wade decision and just in abortion in general. It's the standard that has been set by our culture for conservative Christians something that, that many Christians themselves have, have actually bought into and they've fallen prey to. It's the, ne the necessity to provide this sort of report card before you can justify your pro-life position. I've seen this all over, and I've, I've seen many, many Christians buy into this as well. It, it goes something like this. Sure, Roe was overturned, but we need to be helping and supporting mothers as well. Or something like this, we need, we need to also be supporting policies such as universal health care, gun control, and so on and so on. I've even seen someone say that we support legislation to end abortion, but we don't help the homeless. Let me ask you a question. What in the world does helping the homeless have anything to do with someone saying that they are happy that millions of babies' lives will be saved? Honestly, it's uh, many of these things that people are saying we should be doing are actually good things, like helping the mother, mothers, which Christian conservatives already do. They're really good things, and I want to say that before I'm accused of saying that we shouldn't do many of these things. But I don't have to qualify my belief that it's morally wrong to murder innocent human beings in the womb with anything else. And it's only conservatives that have that burden placed on their shoulders. Think about what the standard is for the progressives at this point. Whatever the social issue is on that day, all you have to do is post about it on social media. That's it. All you have to do is follow the mob, say what they say, and you're good. You can just sit at home on your couch, do absolutely nothing to actually get involved in whatever the cause might be, Post about it, and you're good. That's all you have to do. Maybe go to a protest or two. You don't have to do a whole lot. It's virtue signaling to the highest degree. And it really has become the new quote-unquote righteousness, if you will. The new standard of holiness, 
within the religion of progressivism. Again, there is nothing I have to say. There is nothing I have to add on to show the works that I'm doing in order to justify my belief that it is morally wrong to kill unborn human beings. The article continues. To the contrary, the anti-abortion movement has become increasingly politically conservative over the years. This is simply not true. The pro-life movement has been consistently politically conservative. It is only with the growth of progressive Christianity within the church that has led to people, such as this author, to abandon traditional historical Christian values for the progressive ideology we see today, allowing the cultural moment to influence their beliefs as opposed to standing on historically held Christian beliefs and attempting to influence the culture instead. He continues, It was, for example, one of the bulwarks of the Donald Trump presidency and tends to be solidly behind the military and an aggressive foreign policy. It's usually supportive of the death penalty as well. Contradiction and inconsistency. Abortion isn't murder. Murder is murder. Sorry, that, that confused me. Abortion isn't murder. Murder is murder. Murder is the unjustified, intentional, premeditated killing of a human being. Abortion is the unjustified, intentional, premeditated killing of a human being. They're the same thing. He says this after that. Abortion isn't a holocaust. The holocaust was a holocaust. Okay, another thing that's rather confusing. What is a holocaust? Well, it is the killing of a very large number of groups of people. Six million Jews were killed during the Holocaust. Two million were killed under Pol Pot's. Twenty million were killed by Stalin and potentially a lot more. Sixty-five million were killed under Mao. More than 60 million abortions in America have occurred since 1973. This is just, just talking about one nation. Not my home country of Canada, not any other nation. Just in America since 1973. Six 60 million abortions, plus actually more than 60 million, have occurred since 1973. Now, we would certainly look back on all these genocides throughout history and condemn them as being evil. But we look at these kinds of numbers from abortions today and view them as an actual moral good in our society. We view these 60 million plus dead babies and think, wow, women's rights. Look how far we've progressed. This is one of the biggest blights on our society today. This is one of the biggest regressions we've ever seen. We look back on ancient times where children were being sacrificed on altars to idols and we think how archaic, how barbaric. But we readily support the poisoning and mutilation of unborn babies and think to ourselves, look how far we've come. The author then says this, and a woman's right to choose is a woman's right to choose. This language of a woman's right to choose is is really vague and misleading. Because what is a woman choosing to do? They're choosing to take the life of their unborn child. And in many cases, honestly, I don't blame the woman who is choosing to do this. Not entirely, that is. She is more than likely being surrounded by 
people who are telling her that it's just a clump of cells, that it's not a person. Um, don't worry, it won't, it won't hurt them at all in any way. Your life will get so much better, feeding her head with flat-out lies. But at the end of the day, what is a woman choosing to do? They are choosing to take a human life. The article continues. In terms of the Bible, that is about it. We can dig away at some other scriptural references to try to justify various positions on this issue, but they're all somewhat tenuous, and none of them make an ironclad argument. It's not that the Bible demands abortion rights, more that it simply doesn't have anything pertinent to say about the subject. Women's choice is a central part of the development of gender equality, social liberation, and scientific progress, and it's downright unbiblical to try to twist scripture to argue against it. Now, I think I've adequately adequately shown how unbiblical he is in his assessment of some of the most clear pro-life scripture references there could be. He has to ignore what the Bible says or read what he wants into the passages in order to say it's unbiblical to argue against killing an unborn human being. He says this, I've never met anybody who claims that abortion is good or desirable. Really? (laughs) Because, I mean, you've gone on for an entire article providing an apologetic for the pro-abortion movement. He demonizes conservative Christians for their biblical stance on the issue. He praises the pro-abortion movement and for the so-called women's rights that it provides. Now, I assume he sees women's rights as a good thing, no? Or a desirable thing. And he, he really must have his head in the sand if he hasn't seen the movement turn into the Shout Your Abortion movement. Uh, I'm pretty sure there was an actress recently, yeah, her name was Michelle Williams, who attributed her Golden Globe win to the ability she had to have an abortion. And everybody praised her for it. So his his suggested suggestion that there is nobody that that sees abortion as good or desirable is is completely disingenuous i'll continue i've never met anybody who claims that abortion is good or desirable but then neither would most people argue that any form of surgery or medical intervention is good or desirable okay so now an abortion is nothing more than simply a surgery or medical intervention but he goes on. It can be necessary, life-changing, life-saving, but it's not generally in itself something to be wanted. Again, this is rather deceptive because this is not the current temperature within the pro-abortion movement. It is seen as a moral good, not just something that isn't wanted, but with a reluctancy to provide the service. He goes on. The matter is further complicated because, in the case of abortion, the potential for life certainly exists. Sorry to say, it's not a potential life. It is a life. The science is not on your side on this one. He even mentioned scientific progress a a few minutes ago. But the further we progress scientifically, the harder it is for the pro-abortion movement to make their case. He continues in the article. Sometimes, though rarely, the reasons for termination are controversial, especially when they involve disability or gender, but these are not the underlying reasons for abortion writ large. He's right. These are not the underlying reasons for abortions. The reasons provided for most 
all abortions are no reasons at all. It's simply because the woman the woman wants an abortion. Let me even read to you a recent post by Planned Parenthood. It says this, any reason to get an abortion is the right reason. So there's no controversial reasons anymore. It's any reason whatsoever. He continues in the article. And the solution is not to restrict women's choice, but to build societies where those with disabilities do not face discrimination and where gender equality is the absolute norm. Okay, so I, I want us to notice something here. He, he mentions how he mentions controversial reasons for abortions, such as disability or gender. He then goes on to speak about building societies that do not discriminate against people based on disability or gender. So, do these unborn children with disabilities have rights then? Is it wrong for someone to have an abortion because they'd rather have a boy than a girl? Does the unborn child in, the, in these situations then have rights? Do you notice the inconsistency? You can't have it both ways. He continues, Reluctant as I am to say it, experience leads me to conclude that the anti-abortion movement certainly doesn't always indicate a Christ-based love for others. The humiliation and degradation inflicted on women outside of clinics is genuinely shocking. I've watched protesters howling at vulnerable women walking into clinics, calling them murderers, and predicting that God will not forgive them. Then there are the people who insist on distributing millions of leaflets showing graphic, bloody pictures of abortions, even putting them through the front doors of private homes where it's likely that children will see them. Interesting how... He sees a moral dilemma in children seeing graphic and bloody photos of the results of abortions, and yet he doesn't see a moral dilemma in what happened to those mutilated children in the photos. While they claim to be nonviolent, it's difficult to be convinced. Violence has certainly taken place, and it's included kidnapping, assault, attempted murder, murder, arson, bombings, and stalking. Anti-abortion extremists are considered a domestic terrorist threat by the United States, where most of these incidents occur. There have also been attacks in Australia, New Zealand, New Zealand, Canada, and elsewhere. In the U.S., at least 11 people involved in providing abortion services, including four doctors, two clinic employees, a security guard, and a police officer have been murdered. As recently as late November 2015, in Colorado Springs, a shooting at a Planned Parenthood killed three people and injured several others. The suspect described himself as a warrior for the babies. In 2001, an extremist named Clayton Wagner, or Wagner mailed hoax letters containing white powder to more than 550 abortion clinics, claiming that these were anthrax attacks. Even in allegedly peaceful and moderate Canada, it happens. In 1992, Henry Morgenthaler's clinic in Toronto was hit by a firebomb following several less successful arson attacks. In 1997, Manitoba doctor Jack Feynman, an obstetrician who performed abortions, was shot by a sniper as he sat in his living room. Winnipeg police called the attack terrorism against doctors. He survived, but his injuries meant that he could never work as a doctor again. This gruesome behavior is hardly consistent, of, consistent with a life ethic and certainly not with Christian teaching. 
A violence, an ugliness, and an intolerance has crept into the anti-abortion movement, and the indications are that these emotions and attitudes are becoming worse. Now, I haven't dug into every single one of these cases to vet them all. Um, I don't think that's really the most important thing to address, but but I would say that mainstream the mainstream conservative political movement would be more than happy to condemn these type these types of violent actions. I know the majority of Christians would be happy to condemn violence. But I do wonder if this author would also be willing to recognize and condemn the growing violence and extremism within the pro-abortion movement. Just in the year 2022, there has been 32 churches attacks, attacked, 50 pregnancy centers, one maternity home, three political organizations, one public figure, and one memorial. An assassination attempt was made on a Supreme Court justice in, in the United States, all the conservative justices also have received death threats, and recently a woman was shot while passing out pro-life literature in Michigan. Violence is not encouraged within the mainstream conservative movement, but violence is encouraged within the mainstream progressive movement, movement because it is seen as any means necessary to fight alleged injustice. But that is really beside the point. He continues. It all seems so manufactured, so rooted in something far outside of the gospel narrative. It's also quite recent. In 1968, for example, a meeting held by the Christian Medical Society and the highly influential evangelical magazine Christianity Today concluded that abortion had to be considered in the light of individual health, family welfare, and social responsibility. And the organizers refused to describe abortion as sinful. Three years later, the Southern Baptist Convention, perhaps the most important conservative denomination in North America, passed a resolution calling on Southern Baptists to work for legislation that, would, that will allow the possibility of abortion under such conditions as rape, incest, clear evidence of severe fetal deformity, and carefully ascertained evidence of the likelihood of damage to the emotional, mental, and physical health of the mother. The reference to the emotional, mental, and physical health of the woman carrying the fetus leaves the door wide open to abortion rights. It also makes the exponential growth of radical opposition to abortion within evangelical Christianity seem extremely contemporary. This idea that opposition to abortion is quite recent is, is simply flat out wrong. You can, in fact, trace this all the way back to the Roman Empire, where babies were being tossed out like garbage, and Christians, more specifically Christian women, were saving these babies' lives and raising them as their own. Also, the reference to large organizations such as Christianity Today or even the SBC don't really add anything to this specific conversation. Organizations like these can and have had influences that have led away from what the Bible actually says. And this conversation is what does the Bible say about abortion, not what does Christianity Today say about abortion, not does not what does the Southern Baptist Convention have to say about abortion, but what does the Bible have to say about it? He continues, It's part of the emerging parallel between political and religious conservatism. 
used as a way to mobilize evangelical Christians to work in favor of numerous other right-wing positions and support various conservative political parties. In the U.S., Republican politicians may have any number of views on different issues, but opposition to abortion has become almost a sacrament in the catechism of reaction. It gives the impression of being far more about politics than about life or faith. Again, there has been pro-life, a pro-life presence throughout history, long before the existence of the United States politics. Pro-life values are not a new thing. And the irony is, is that many studies recently have shown that progressive Christians are far more involved and extreme about politics than conservative Christians are. So they are it's okay for them to link their worldview and their uh, their Christian faith or so-called Christian faith to their politics, but it's not okay for conservative Christians to link their worldview or their um, biblical faith to their politics. So I, I find a bit of an ir- irony there. He continues, In all of the Christian opposition to abortion, there is a strong element of control, a notion that women don't merit autonomy and are instead vessels and vehicles for children. They have a duty to be mothers, not the right to be free, independent beings. Apart from the obvious offensiveness of it all, it's just not biblical. Women are the first to see the resurrection resurrected Christ and are not believed by the frightened men who, who cower in upper rooms and in hiding. A woman, Mary, his mother, tells Jesus to perform his first miracle, the turning of water into wine. It's Mary who questions an angel, Mary who is so concerned about Jesus' state of mind during his ministry, Mary who is at the cross when so many others have run away, Mary who says, he has shown strength with his arm, he has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts, he has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. There's there are some things here that I would agree with. And the Christian influence in culture and in our world historically has has brought about, has consistently brought about the the higher value of women and women's rights. But these types, these types of arguments from from pro-abortion advocates kind of grow tiring. This has nothing to do with the attempt to control women's bodies, but it has everything to do with the moral depravity of killing innocent human beings. It has nothing to do with trying to control women. It has everything to do with not allowing people to kill other people. We would never be okay with a mother killing their two-year-old child and we're arguing that it's also not okay for a mother to kill their child in her womb. We're just against the intentional premeditated killing of innocent human beings. And it just so happens that women are the only ones that can actually have and carry human beings in their, in their wombs and their bodies. Here's the thing. There is no response with this idea or argument that, that Christian conservatives or conservatives in general are just are trying to control women. There is no response to the actual argument presented. It just assumes the motives of the one making the argument. This is a, a logically fallacious way of trying to argue your point. You don't, you don't interact with the argument. 
you, you try to attack the motives of the individual making the argument. And really, it's, it's nothing more than a misdirection. It's meant to direct you away from the actual issue at hand. It's meant to distract you from the actual bloodshed within the abortion industry. And quite frankly, most pro-abortion arguments are exactly that. They're misdirections. They're meant to distract you from the poisoning and mutilation of babies in the womb. The author finishes with this. Jesus is about the humanity and equality of us all. He is about the brave new world that is light and bright. This magnificent rebel shouldn't be reduced to a poster or a slogan used to hurt half of the world's population, to force them into powerlessness and degradation. If Jesus was simply about the equality of us all, why would he tell his followers that they will suffer persecution and be hated because of their identification with his name. He warned his followers about the guaranteed future inequality. And you know why he was actually a, re a rebel? Because he spoke the truth even when people didn't want to hear it, even when people were offended by what he said. Jesus was about the redemption of mankind, and that involves the recognition of sin, the repentance of the sinner, and the acceptance of the remedy for the sin. And that remedy was and is Jesus himself, and based on his death and resurrection. Jesus said that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no person could come to God the Father except through himself. That is what Jesus was all about. And I've shown clearly that Jesus was for the life of the little ones, and his word clearly spells out the value of each individual image-bearing life. Christian, if you have any ounce of pro-abortion views in you, you are right now in direct opposition to the scriptures. And you need to repent if you are going to be faithful to God's words. I will never, never be able to understand why the best way to help women in crisis pregnancy situations is to kill their child, causing them future trauma that they will never be able to live down and that they will struggle with for the rest of their lives. The Bible does value all human life. The Bible does support the scientific fact that life begins at conception, and the Bible is not a pro-abortion book. These are the facts. I hope that was helpful for you today. And that'll be it for the episode for part two of our discussion on what does the Bible say about abortion. Thank you for tuning in. If you have any questions for me, thoughts or comments, and maybe a, a topic you might want me to discuss in a future episode, send me an email, email to ryanholmespodcast at gmail.com. Don't forget to visit ryanholmespodcast.locals.com to join our community and get 15% off everything in our store. I appreciate any support. Um, if you're on the YouTube, like, comment, subscribe, hit the notification bell. And ultimately, please share this podcast and let's encourage others to think about their faith and live it out. We'll see you next time.